move forward. First, I want to mention about a retreat that I'm teaching starting on October 31st. So if you're interested in exploring meditation on that deeper level, um, this is a retreat I've been uh, co-teaching. Oh, great, we've got flyers. Um, one, maybe you could bring one up for me, Katie, thanks. Um, this is a t- retreat I've been co-teaching with another person in recovery, Heather Sundberg, who's a spirit rock teacher. Thank you. Um, ninth annual, wow, we've been doing it a long time, Buddhism in the Twelve Steps. Uh, goes from October 31st to November 4th. It's down in Boulder Creek, which is near, it's in the Santa Cruz Hills at this beautiful Tibetan center. There are some people here who have been on the retreat. And uh, it's, we structure it in a way to try to kind of combine the opportunity to get in some serious meditation time, but then also some interactive time, so that it's kind of trying to blend the uh, practices of Buddhism and recovery, sort of the, the meditation of, of Buddhism and the interaction and communication of, of uh, recovery. And so we do some formal kind of mindfulness uh, um, mindful dialogue exercises in the afternoons and we have a like a, a meeting kind of a circle uh, in the end of the evening but m- m- the rest of the time it's in silence so, so it's really very rich and as I say a very beautiful place so there are still spots open and, um, and Katie was nice enough to print out some flyers which are back on the table so pick one up if you are interested um, other things that are coming up at Spirit Rock, uh, a trauma and mindfulness five-week series that starts this Monday. That's in the mo- morning, 12, 10 to 12 in the morning. So if you're interested in that. Uh, also an introduction to insight meditation class series. It started this last night, but it's sixth week, so you could probably come in next week. And then uh, Spirit Rock is celebrating their 25th anniversary year, uh, starting uh, October 28th, Sunday, just in the evening, 6 to 8 p.m. It's a fundraiser. Finally, I will mention that this issue of Inquiring Mind, uh, which just came out, I was the guest editor of it, (coughs) and and I was the uh, um, one who suggested the topic be practicing with difficult emotions. Uh, That's a particular interest of mine. And so it's called Demons and Dharma and has some good articles. Uh, One of them I wrote. Uh, A couple of articles by people who are uh, in recovery, who've been through some trauma of various types when they were young and became addicts and then kind of got clean and got into Buddhism. And so very nice. Uh, There's a lot of great stuff in it. So they are back on the table. They are free. Please help yourself to them. So, that takes care of business for now. So, um, I'm going to just get out these pages. I actually printed out what I wrote uh, in the last couple days about step 10. And um, I I wanted to start by talking about um, how we, uh, ways of thinking about the structure of the 12 steps or the the ways of kind of uh, dividing up the steps. Um, 
and that, that's something that I did in my first book, One Breath at a Time. Uh, by, by thinking of the steps as uh, three different sections, the first three steps I think I call surrender. I wrote it a long time ago. Um, and then this second three, this, the middle steps, steps, um, you know, steps uh, four through nine, which are the inventory and the amends, uh, I call, I think, responsibility and something, something, let's see. Uh, oh, is it? Oh, it's in the table of contents. Thanks. Investigation and responsibility. So, oh yeah, that's good. That's helpful. And then the last section I call fulfillment, uh, which is st starting with step 10, 11, and 12. And as I've been working on another book on the steps, and this book I'm, I'm working on now is a workbook where I'm trying to give kind of exercises, contemplations, reflections uh, that relate to each step. And try to be something more practical about how to kind of uh, apply the things that I'm talking about in my Connecting Buddhism the 12 Steps. I, one of the things that's come up for me is some of the other ways that we can th think about the steps because obviously when you get into the middle steps four and five, the, the fourth step is the searching and fearless moral inventory and then five is sharing the inventory, right? Admitting to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the nature of wrongs. And then steps six and seven go together. I, I know I'm not, for those who are immersed in the steps, this is nothing new, but just to refresh us all. Step six is we're entirely ready to have God remove defects, and then seven is humbly asked him to remove them. So those two go together. And then eight and nine made a list of those we'd harmed, and then nine made direct amends to them. So I'm thinking about actually kind of doing little introductions to each of those pairs of steps. And you can also sort of think of one, two, and three, again, as kind of a, a set that's what I, that I would call something like power and powerlessness. And we'll talk about how those connect. And then as I did in this book, you know, you can take 10, 11, 12. However, <laughs> what's also obvious is that step 10 is a continuation of step 9. And I hope this doesn't seem too just academic or something, but I, I, I'm, I'm hoping to get somewhere that I'll be making a point. Um, so in step nine, we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Step 10 is continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Uh, you know, obviously these are both about amends. They both use the word amends. And, but what I think is really the critical thing that's happening here between step nine and step ten is that we're going from a process of, in which there's kind of a finite structure to each step in a sense. Like step one, it's like, okay, I'm sober. You know, step two is like, okay, I'm ready to, you know, believe that I can, you know, uh, do this. And step three, okay, I'm going to turn it over. I've kind of, kind of got a sense of a higher power. I'm going to try to live. Step four is like, okay, I wrote my inventory. Then five, I said, you know, you kind of go through these things that can be even seen as ritual. Uh, they have a form and structure. When you get to step 10, this is when it turns into something else because it 
it doesn't just say you made amends, because you know, there's, there's a sense, okay, people will say, well, I, I did my amends, right? Okay, so you're done, right? But step 10 says, no, this is not really about a finite process. And that's what I think is so critical about it. And I, th I think that without step 10, the real spirit of the steps could be lost and, and there could be this sense of, oh, I just need to get through the steps, as I mentioned before. Like, okay, then I'm done. And step 10 is the beginning of, of us seeing clearly that this is not a finite process. This is not about completing something, finishing the job, yeah. graduating. This is about changing who we are, how we are, how we live. So step 10 is pointing to a certain aspect of that. <coughs> so continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. That there, this implies, first of all, that we are going to continue to make mistakes, which I think is a really important thing for us to acknowledge. So I think one of the first things about this step that we can see is that it, it continues to demand humility that the steps talk about, the importance of humility, the willingness to see that, okay, I'm sober now, I'm really getting my life together, and I still keep, I keep making mistakes. And that that's okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, humility without the sense of forgiveness and compassion is more like, you know, humiliation. Like, oh, I'm a loser. You know, I keep making mistakes. No, the understanding that this is life, right? Progress, not perfection. So this step then is, requires us to be continuously humble. And certainly one of the ways that it's practiced is in that the end of the day, that daily review, to look back and see where we've been wrong, maybe where we've been right as well. The idea of promptly admitting, really a helpful phrase, because first of all, who wants to admit they're wrong? Who wants to admit their mistakes? Nobody. So we're going to keep putting it off if we can. But it also is protecting us from the potential of building up a whole bunch of other stuff that's going to have to turn into another inventory later, a whole going back to a fourth step. And it's obviously that is trying to protect us further from a relapse. So I think, again, if we can kind of reverse engineer the steps, we can see that the inventory that we wrote in step four was actually one of the causes of our addiction. It was one of the results of our addiction, but was also one of the causes of it, one of the things that sustains it. When we're carrying a burden of guilt and shame, when we feel that we are, you know, unworthy in some way, or we're just not living up to our own values, that weighs us down. And it's very easy to want to drink that, or drug that, or gamble that, or sex that, or food that away. So this step is trying to protect us from that buildup of burden, 
that could cause relapse. Yeah. How do you um, how do you practice step ten properly without being an asshole? Um, no, because like I'll get say like in an argument with someone close to me who happens to be next to me, and, to yeah, and I'd be like, well, you say all these horrible things in an argument, and then you expect it to go away because you said, hey, I'm an addict, and I said some really horrible shit, and I'm sorry about that. Mm -hmm. That was my bad, you know. And like maybe there's an implication that because you did this, there's some absolution. Forgiveness, and it's just not always that way. Uh, do you have to ask questions like that? I, was, I was going along really well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, if all we do is keep if we keep doing the same thing over and over and just saying I'm sorry and then just doing it again, that's really not making amends because a fundamental aspect of, of making amends is that we change the behavior. That's a fundamental aspect of, of the program and the steps. Um, at the same time, um, in my relationship, uh, a lot of times the conflict comes around defensiveness, you know, and the unwillingness to admit I'm wrong. And that oftentimes just coming to that kind of level of honesty, and it's, it's not about, oh, I'm just, I'm sorry. It's like really recognizing, wow, I really, you know, that, that wasn't cool. And, but I, th I think, you know, in that kind of, when we're talking about, you know, an intimate relationship that's ongoing, there's usually a necessity to get to another level of honesty, which isn't about amends, but which is about understanding what the triggers are and being able to say what it was that, and what it felt like, you know, the kind of, I guess I would say, the misperception that I was operating under. So when you said this, I felt like this. Not you made me feel like this. That's a no-no. But, <laughs> but that brought up this, and that's, this is how I heard it, and that's how I... And, and looking at it now, I realize, like, wow, I was just being reactive. That kind of, you know, it's more than just saying, I'm sorry, but so, sort of being able to understand, because your partner wants to forgive you, you know what I mean? You, you know, in a relationship, usually people want to get pa past if they're really sincere and they're, you know, they're both relatively mature about it or healthy or whatever you want to call it. They're willing, they're trying to get past it. And so when we understand, the thing that evokes compassion for most people is understanding another person's suffering. So when you can explain that, where that was coming from, that seems to me to be a more effective than just saying, I'm sorry, and going on and, you know, oh, sorry, you know, it's like, yeah, what, you know, what was that about? 
And that kind of awareness then can help us to not be there, yeah, to get not get caught in that. And when our partner understands these triggers too, they can start to see, oh, right, that's what's happening. You're misunderstanding. You're, you know, I said this and you heard it as your mother kind of thing. You know? <laughs> so I, that's the best I can do on short notice. Um. So, just to get back, kind of uh, maybe wrap this up a bit, is to say that you know this is kind of one of the the way I'm talking about step ten is kind of pointing to something that I've been saying uh, for probably the last six months or so that. That's a view that I really appreciate that I actually heard in a meeting and it just kind of went, wow, of course, which is the, under, the understanding that it's, it's not about doing the steps or working the steps. The steps are about becoming a person who lives in this way, who is this way, who is honest, who admits their mistakes, who, who tries to move through painful communication, who uh, tries to let go. Um, who tries to be compassionate, you know, we, it's, we ha- that we're trying to become, and I don't exactly want to say we're trying to become different people, but, uh, you know, the best version of ourselves, that ver- this version of ourselves that, that uh, is honest and um, embodies these principles. And I, this is what I think uh, is kind of the biggest difference between someone who's kind of in rehab or kind of just starting to work a program and somebody who's been around for a while. Because I, you know, there's this, uh, one, one of the mistakes people make, I think, is that, oh, I'm just going to stop drinking. I'm just going to stop taking drugs. I'm going to stop just this behavior and then I'm okay, right? Which is essentially just working step one. Right? But people go through, if, if you go through the steps just ritualistically or in a rote manner and think, oh, I've done the steps, like that's supposed to fix me. Like if I just go to church on Sunday, I'm spiritual, you know, God will take care of me. It's really kind of magical thinking. And, and I think the people who are successful in recovery embrace the idea that this is uh, about changing everything. Um, the, I talked about this in this book, about uh, hearing Ajahnamara, one of my teachers who's a monk, say, the monastic life isn't, like lay, isn't just like lay life without the perks, you know, with like no sex, no money, and no food afternoon, you know, you can't drive a car, you know, you can't go to the movies, just like, wow, that sucks, you know. It's a completely different life. You can't see, you can't understand that from the outside, you know, you can't, you look and you go, oh God, I could never give up all those things. It's not about 
giving up all those things. It's, it's becoming a different way. It's just the same way. People go, I could never stop drinking. Or people will say, I couldn't go on a silent retreat. You know, I could never not talk for 10 days. It's not about not talking for 10 days. You know? It's not about not drinking. It's about becoming a different person. It's a, it's a total transformation. You don't just take the drugs and alcohol or that behavior out of your life and then go back to everything else. Oh, I'll just go hang out with my old friends you know, in the same, in the bar and drink club soda, you know. I, I mean, it just, it's, and, and that's the letting go. It's, that's the bigger letting go, right? Because it's, you know, our whole personality structure and our whole social structure. And, and for some of us, our professional life, all this is like wrapped up in it. I mean, I was a musician playing in bars, you know. That's what I did for a living. Yeah, I mean, for a while, I continued to do that and, and drank club soda, you know, and, and, and stayed sober for a while. But, you know, it wasn't a workable lifestyle. And after a while, you're like, who would want to, you know? I mean, so this is what I think is, is what we all, uh, you know, recognize and need to certainly need to recognize that that this process is a, is a total immersion. Um, you know, and I, I've been I've said to, uh, to a couple people recently that um, when I wrote this book, I thought I was writing it for people who were ten years sober, who were looking to expand on their spiritual life, who kind of had come to some kind of a wall in their recovery and kind of wanted more. And then I started to hear from all these newcomers who were like, oh, it's, your book is really helping me stay sober. And I was like, oh, wow, like, no, you're not supposed to be reading that. <laughs> you need to read the big book and the 12 and 12, go to a lot of meetings, and maybe after a while you'll be ready for it. Um, because one of the things that people want to do is go, oh, great, I don't need all that 12-step stuff, I'll just take this, you know, this will be my program. I don't know. I mean, maybe. That's not, that wasn't my intention. And, I, and I'm running into the same issue as I write this new book because I'm, I'm writing it with the same intention, really. I'm, uh, I'm trying to, I'm talking about the steps in these kind of like, what are they called, second stage recovery or something, uh, way. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if somebody picks up this book and says, oh, this is how you work the steps, uh, uh, it's not what I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to say right in the beginning. You know, work the steps with something that, you know, traditional first, and then you're allowed to get this. <laughs> you can buy this book now. It's okay. <laughs> but don't do it. Don't it. Because, you know, I don't want to repeat all the stuff that's in all those regular, you know, AANA workbooks. I mean, why bother, right? Um, and, and I'm talking about it, and you know, I may have the word contemplative in the title because it's more of a, like a contemplative guide rather than like I'm going to write the steps. It's more like, you know, a lot of the exercises in there, think about this, you know, <laughs> sit down, close your eyes, and think about this for a while, you know. And um, that's not exactly, I don't think that's the way those workbooks usually work. What, you know, what I love is the workbooks where you buy it and there's like all these blank pages and you're going, what? 
why did I pay for this? <laughs> this is like a 25-page book, and, it's, and I paid $20 for it. So, like, so I'm not having blank pages in my book. I just want you to know you have to get your own notebook. I mean, I, I won't be here to talk about Step 11 next month, but I certainly will be talking about, I will be here in December to talk about Step 12, but, um, I, you know, I just want to kind of wind it up by saying that these, the last three steps are, to me, the ones that are trying to set us on this course of of living this recovery life, and that's that's why I love the last phrase in step 12 that says, and practice these principles in all our affairs. And that's where we, if there are any doubts, right, it closes all the loopholes. <coughs> this is what the program is about. Uh, and, you know, there's nowhere that it exactly says what the principles are, so it gives us the opportunity to kind of reflect on that, what are the principles. But clearly one of the principles is honesty towards ourselves, honesty with others, a willingness to look at ourselves in a very um, unadulterated way without uh, sugarcoating either our inner or our outer life and coming into acceptance of that. So uh, that leaves us some time for discussion there are other thoughts uh, on on this? Uh, yes. You know, one of those newbies who um, discovered your your book, the uh, Burning Desire, halfway through a uh, family group uh, process, and found it really reawakened my interest in the whole thing. And mm. uh, my, my fantasy actually is that you'd write a uh, a twelve step workbook from a uh, Dharma perspective, but it probably doesn't. Well, that's what I'm. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm writing. You know. oh, that's what I. <laughs> I thought I said that. What? Blank pages too? No. Oh, no, no. I mean, why do you need blank pages? I mean, God. You just get another. So what you do? You buy a little notebook. You keep that. with. You can get if you, a little rubber band. Yeah, and then you just attach that. Excellent. Yeah. I just, I know, I, I just can't do that. I'm get, yeah, so, I mean, sorry. I don't believe in those. So, maybe it's not a belief, but yes. I'm, um, I'm kind of a student of resistance. I mean, I'm really interested in, in resistance, and a lot of people like resistance to change is what I'm talking about. Not political resistance. No. Right. <laughs> well, that, that's a whole other Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I just mean it's that not right going now to that, I'm right? talking about resistance to change. Uh -huh. Your own resistance, or just you're just your. Oh, okay. I mean, my own. You find it interesting, I can only yes. Yeah, right. I can best uh, address my own. But um, I used to parrot what I hear. A lot of people seem to parrot, oh, we don't change because we like the familiar. And to mm -hmm. me, that's not very useful. And mm -hmm. to me, it's more useful to say that we incorrectly forecast this deprivation. That means something to me. And um, and that is actually not what happens, you know, because we, we sort of this thing that we didn't expect we become open to, and to to me that that 
that excites me. But somehow, I like going back to being a deprived kid. You know, I'm really, I have resisted, even though I have all these wonderful ideas about uh, why not to resist, I, uh, I'm really into, you know, the, the deprivation thing. And, and I have this very loving, powerful, higher power, but, you know, I like to say, fuck you, you know? I, I, I don't, I'm not used to being that loved. You know, it's like, go away. And uh, anyway, I, that's something I'm struggling with. Uh, well, you know, I actually approach this from, uh, I think I would say the opposite direction, which is the question that I'm really interested in is how do we change, not why do we resist? <laughs> because it doesn't really help me that much to figure out why I resist. What I, want to, and what I want to know is how do I change? Because then the resistance isn't the issue, you know? And, it's, and so that's what um, I think that the recovery process is about, is about how we change. And that's what I think Buddhism is about. It's also what therapy is about and a lot of things. So just, just as a suggestion, you, know, you might just shift that and say, you know, what can I, rather than how can I overcome this resistance, rather, what do I want to do? You know, you know what can I do? What are the positive things that I can do to change? And, uh, yeah. Yeah, Michael. I was thinking something that, that helped me with practicing step 10 more often than not is uh, this idea of, of giving up on the, myself mm. and seeing the wrongdoings that I, that I do, did, as simply human behaviors. Giving up on yourself. <laughs> well, giving up on... I as self, me, Michael, what I do is wrong, mm -hmm. I'm bad because I did this. Right, good. But rather seeing what I did as a human behavior. And so giving up the concept of self right. as linked to that behavior. And so it made it much easier for me to say, I'm really sorry about that. I did. I didn't realize what I was doing. Mm -hmm and being sorry for the human behavior that I committed. Mm -hmm. And it came up uh, a couple, couple summers ago, I snuck a burrito into a movie. <laughs> and, and it was at a time when I was, I know. My wife does that. <laughs> the California Theater, the film was 13 Assassins, it was a matinee, it was a summer, I was off, and the, the manager, came and said, do you have anything oh in God. there, sir? And I said, I have medical supplies. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I think that I was, was really loud. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because I figured out medical supplies. Food. I'm not going to look inside. And but it's but got it a smell. Me. I mean, I know, right? Yeah, you know. <laughs> and it killed me. It killed me for like two weeks. Yeah. I so I went back. Oh, my God.
I wanted to bring it, you know, I'm, you know, I did, this right. is a human, right. you know, so why not say, hey, you know, I'm sorry, I, I did, you caught, and it wasn't a big deal. So Mike, was the burrito good? It was great. It was hard to uh, swallow. It, it really was. Get that a, did you get that at Cancun? Or? Yeah, I mean, that's the place in downtown Berkeley. It's right around the corner. But it was this idea, though, more so, I guess, that was anecdotal. Yeah, no, right. The idea, which is really just, if I can get, remove myself from it and see the behavior for what it is, then I'm not so embarrassed to go back. So I need to write that story down. That'll be a good one in my book, (laughs) Medical Supplies. You know, I, I say something almost exactly like that same thing. I, the, the, you know, seeing ourselves as generic human beings rather than as unique people. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Thank you. And I, I, I do. I agree. I think that's that's really a key. And I, and I think that's what um, you know where forgiveness and compassion come from. And and. I also would argue that when we say that anonymity is the spiritual foundation of our program, that that's what it's talking about, you know, principles before personalities. Uh, and it's, it's, that's not a, the spiritual idea of anonymity is not being attached to ego, to self. It's not about, you know, press, radio, and film. That's, a, to me, a secondary thing. <laughs> Better be. Yeah, you had a question back here. Oh, I was, I was just gonna go out there. Like, I know for me, like, I had to get to step ten before I started practicing step ten because, like, I haven't changed my behavior yet and stuff like that. So, like, you know, it was kind of like I, it, mm-hmm. I was, it was like doing what I've always done. Like you were saying, like just saying sorry. You know what I mean? It, it's like it's that whole thing. And until you get to step ten, I mean, step eleven, you can kind of practice. You know, out of out of order. Mm-hmm. Step 10, I, I think that, uh, you know, until you start showing and proving to the your your significant other or something like that, that, mm-hmm. that you really are changing it, it, it to, to jump in and start practicing step 10, you know, it's kind of, it, it's, 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 yeah, it doesn't have the, you know, you don't have the tools yet to, uh, to really practice. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a good point. That's interesting because I was thinking as you were starting to say that, well, a lot of people do start to try to make some kind of amends or live differently. But, but I think you're right that the, the subtleties of making amends, if you don't understand that, uh, then it can get very, it can be superficial or it can be harmful even. Um, yeah, I, I find step, you know, the, the ninth step uh, to be just... Mm, uh, really require a lot of discretion, I guess is the best term for it. That, that I, I think what's, to me what's most important is embracing the, the humility and the honesty and the willingness. But there's so, so many times when people come to me and say, well, I, you know, I think I should make amends to this person. Once they tell me this story, I say, I, I don't think you should do that, <laughs> you know, because very often it's about an ex-lover or an ex-partner, and it's, it seems like in most cases that I run into, there's nothing good that come, can come out of 
contacting them. And that usually when people are honest about it, it's, you know, at least a veiled attempt to get back together. <laughs> or, you know, or at least to get some kind of forgiveness that, you know, Yes, to make themselves feel better, exactly. Uh, and, and that's not what the amends are about. And that's, that's hard to accept, that some things we have to live with. Uh, There's a lot of creative ways that you could go about, you know, doing certain stuff where you don't have to, you know, hurt the other person or disclose stuff. I mean, I, yeah. I had two years of sobriety. This is kind of embarrassing that, but I had two years of sobriety, and... Uh, I was at a stop stoplight, and these drunk people walked across the street, and, and the, the lady went to reach something out of her back pocket, and this wad of money came up on the ground. And here I am. I didn't even think twice about it. They got it out of my view, and the light was still red. I jumped out there. The money was starting to blow away. I grabbed that money in front of everybody and God, and I jumped in my truck, and immediately I was like, and I was all feeling good before. I was like, I was going to see my girlfriend. I'm like, I was feeling good. All of a sudden, I just went like, oh, it just, you know, but there's nothing I could have done. I went to my sponsor, and I was like, dude, I can't believe it. He's all, well, yeah, there's a few people around the rooms of AA. He's all, well, how much did you get? I'm all 65. He's all, go get that person 20. Get that person. You know, because like, I was able, you know, because I couldn't make that amends. You know, I couldn't find them. You know, so yeah. I, I just, I, I gave it to some more needy people. But I, I, I just remember that instant, like, you know, which was good because I, you know, normally I would be like, sixty bucks, right? Yeah. Just, just like, Man. You know, instantly felt mm. like crap, and, uh, and I said that, and I was wondering like, how am I gonna make an amends? So yeah. I went to my sponsor, and like I said, came up with a creative way to where you know I didn't have to go. I don't know, try from, I don't know, you know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah, and you know, maybe one of the purposes of making amends is to kind of Pavlovian, you know, to. Or like a shock, shock collar, you know that that uh, you know you realize when I do this stupid stuff, I have to like go and make amends. Like whoa, it's not worth it. So that uh, hurts too much. You know, eventually you get like okay, whoa, I'm not going to steal that because it's like I'll have to go through that agony of the shock collar again. <laughs> Maybe we should have them. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> said a couple things that I really uh, related to tonight. Uh, honesty about this, honesty about ourselves, and I don't know if it actually says somewhere in the steps about rigorous honesty, but... It says it in the book, in the, book. In the big book, anyway. And, um, and the fact that the whole thing is about changing, right, ourselves and changing how we look at life and how we react to life and how we deal with it, and we want to become... We want to grow and become, I don't know, uh, it's not really becoming someone else. But. Yeah. So I feel really strongly about these things, and this is what I'm getting the most out of my program, is just sharing and talking and accessing my feelings and yeah. you know, getting it out there. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like the steps are almost a formality to go through. I mean, they're, it's good, it's important. I need to do amends. I'm not even there yet, but mm -hmm. I, I know I need to do that stuff. Mm -hmm. Is that does that seem like an accurate assessment, or are you are you reading things like honesty and becoming someone else in the steps in a different way than, than I'm seeing them? Or, I don't know. Well, yeah, I certainly. Um, 
use the steps in my own thinking and my only in my writing and teaching as a as a jumping off point for expanding on the principles, you know, and and both from a recovery and from a Buddhist standpoint. So I'm really trying to mine them for as much as I can get out of each step, you know. Uh, so I, I certainly think I'm going beyond the literal in understanding or interpretation of them into, into a, a broader view of them. Um, and yeah, I mean, the steps can be worked in this just systematic way where you go through them as I talked about earlier. Um, and, and yeah, I don't think that's where the real heart of the steps lies. Um, nonetheless, it's difficult maybe, maybe it's so similar to the talking about how you get into deeper meditation, that you sort of have to go through the rote aspect of it to get to the next stage of it. Uh, you you said something though that reminded me of something that I wanted to talk about as well, which is that this this connection between the honesty that the that the steps and particularly the uh, the inventory and amend steps are calling for, and our mindfulness meditation or or any kind of meditation, that when we sit down. To meditate, yeah, a lot of times we're trying to just pay attention to the breath and trying to get calm and everything, but the stuff that comes up doesn't necessarily have to be just like pushed aside. A lot of times what comes up is like, oh, wow, <laughs> I need to deal with this. And so I see my, particularly in my daily meditation, as a kind of fourth step slash tenth step, you know, that's a kind of inventory that's sometimes showing me what I've done wrong. Uh, sometimes it's like what I need to do or whatever, but it's like it's information a lot of times. So I don't think that this is another reason why we don't have to kind of struggle with, oh, I'm spacing out a lot in my meditation. It's like, well, what are you spacing out about? Because that might be something you need to actually do something about. And I'm not suggesting that you sit down and meditate and go, oh, what do I need to think about? What do I need to worry about? You don't have to do that. You know, don't worry, it'll come up. Uh, you know, and one, of the, and one of the things that's a clue and a cue for the fact that something needs attention is that you keep coming back to your breath and then your mind keeps going to that place. And that's like, oh, I mean, Jack Kornfield talks about this as insistent visitors, you know, insistent visitors in your mind, in your meditation. And, and that's another reason why it's so important to take the time to be quiet because we're you know, we go so fast and keep ourselves so distracted with screens during the day that we're able to kind of hold everything out there. I mean, even if we're not using anymore, right? We're able to kind of, and when you stop and just go, okay, I'm just going to meditate. Oh, this will be nice. I'll have some quiet All the stuff. Oh, shit. Right. Oh, right. You know, it comes up and it's, okay, right. I forgot about that. I mean, it happens to me regularly. Like, I forget about stuff. Oh, right. I need to call that person. Oh, I didn't take care of that. Like, it's just a way to leave some space in your life for the, the things that need to bubble up to come up. And sometimes it's that rigorous honesty that shows up and that allows, all right, that was wrong. I need to do something about that.
So don't always get too attached to the idea of peace in, in your meditation. In fact, sometimes we get peaceful in a suppressing kind of way. It's like, oh yeah, right, I'm really meditating. It's like, mm, don't think about that. Just fall asleep and feel, oh, that was a really mellow meditation. That was great. Yeah. I'm finding um, recently that a couple years ago when I first went on silent retreat, my big thing was if I'm not suffering and miserable, then who am I? I was kind of like. Yeah. Can people hear in the back? No. <laughs> I was just thinking if I'm not miserable and suffering, then I, I didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. So I, instead of like making it about an experience or a feeling, it was like I really internalized it and made it who I was. Made what? Just made it who I was. I was What's like, it? Hmm? What's it? My suffering and... Okay, right, sorry, sorry. Okay, good, yeah. You made your suffering, so that was your identity. Yeah. So, two years later and whatever. Process. Right now, sitting here, just listening to you talk, and I was thinking, I may not be acting on it yet or know how to do it, but my mind is open to the fact that instead of reacting with fear or anger and shutting it out... When, I, when I'm faced with something like a flaw in myself or an issue I need to work on, I'm going, oh. And something I was just thinking this last week is that I found myself doing with my husband because I get this indignant sort of uh, self-righteousness. He's the addict, so he's wrong, and I'm right, and I'm the one being hurt. Ta-da. And I'm thinking, but I don't quite know how to fix that part yet but I'm I'm, I'm sitting with it like I'm and I'm waiting for it and I'm working on it opposed to shutting it down Uh okay yeah you could just tell her how to fix fix that yeah (laughs) but in the past stop trying to fix it just in life I would just get extra pissy yeah make sure it blew up into a massive thing right until I was eventually right and then but I mean a couple years ago on that same retreat I'd rather be free than right with something that stuck with me. And so I'm trying to be more aware of that and not beating something to death to prove that I'm right, whether I'm not or I am. Yeah. You know, it's been such a, such a process for me, and it's just that opening and not, and being willing to work on it, I guess, and being honest with myself, too, that yeah. I have flaws, too, that I need to work on. Very possible. <laughs> well, it's possible. It's possible. well it, you know it reminds me of my you know again of my own experience with my wife and and those occasions I won't claim that they're uh, how that they're terribly often but when I just um, yeah just allow her to be right um, and um how the problem is solved by that. <laughs> and, it, and amazingly enough, you know, she then behaves much more the way I want her to behave, too. <laughs> so the best way for me to control her is to let her be right. <laughs> but, but it is, a, you know, it, it's really um, it's hard when you've got an ego. You know, and when you've got a stubborn, you know, defensive, uh, you know, um, controlling ego, 
to just go, okay, yeah, fine, I'm not going to fight about this. I'm going to let you be right. Um, but as you say, I mean, this is, again, what, you know, what the Buddha is kind of trying to get us to see that, and, you know, one of my, this isn't exactly a unique theory, but it's a way of viewing the practice as the Buddha teaches it. You know, he, the first thing he teaches is about is suffering and then the cause of suffering. But he's asking us to really be aware of suffering. And so he, so he teaches mindfulness, which is this really you know, refined attention so that you can really feel your suffering. Not just like, oh, it's uncomfortable. Like, oh, I can really present with them, really experiencing. Well, the result of that, potentially, is that, just as you described, that we see that, wow, this isn't worth it. It's not worth it to do these things that create suffering. Because obviously he's, he's, he recognizes that there's this tremendous human tendency to try to hold on to our viewpoint and to try to hold on to our beliefs in, our, in order to control and, and cling, as it says, you know, in all kinds of ways, but especially in these kind of ways in relationship. And that, you know, he's, he's suggesting another approach, approach, but he's kind of saying, I know the only way I'm going to get people to do this to let go. It's not going to be something philosophical or even spiritual to say, oh, you know, it's really good if you let go. It's really good karma and you'll become enlightened. You know, it's like, no, notice your suffering. And then you'll be like, oh, God, I can't stand being this way anymore. I mean, that, why do people get sober? Because they've become aware of and recognize that this doesn't work anymore. This is too painful. And you finally become willing to let go of that thing that, that, that you don't want to let go of because you'd rather be free than have that pleasure. Or It's no longer pleasure for most of us, but have that thing that you think is so important. And it's the same, thi- same way we get attached to our ego and our, our rightness. That, you know, and finally, when you see what that's doing, when you really keep looking, you wow, this is really, I really, lo- it's important to be right, and they've got to be, it's like, oh, God, this hurts. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, I just, I'm wrong. Okay, fine, I'm wrong. Ah, I'm wrong. Ah, what a relief. Uh, you know, it's, that view is actually, very much how I approach my role as a teacher. I'm not going to get up in front of you and pretend to be a, you know, a good Dharma teacher because it's too painful to hold on to being a good... I'm like, you know, I'm just like Jack Cornfield, really. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, my talks are really organized and I have all these great stories and it's just, it's really going to be entertaining. And, you know, I can't do it, you know. I just found like the only way I could do it was just to come up and be myself. Oh. And I can just be a goofy jerk, you know, and once in a while say something useful and be honest. And, 
you know, if it comes out, it's helpful, you know, whatever. I mean, if I study and I practice sincerely, you know, and I'm just like, let it out, something's going to be okay. And if it isn't, nobody will come, and then they'll just cancel the class, and fine, I'll find another job, you know. So, that's called turning it over. You know? There's a little bit of a dark twist to that, though. Kevin style. It, well, yeah. It's what makes it fun. So we're just about out of time. Oh, one, oh, I don't know if I should really call it. So, you know, I've got Keaton here. Got the big book out. And oh, God. Read along. <laughs> well, what strikes me as interesting here, Kevin, is, you know, we're talking about all this stuff. And, you know, kind of in the end of this first paragraph, and, and it's really interesting. He does talk a lot about, you know, he created a long, took a long time to create these problems, and they're not going to go away overnight. Right. So just get over it. Yeah. It's not going to happen. But... The, the, kind of towards the end here, the first, second paragraph, there's a little comment here that we really haven't touched on. It It really kind of struck me as, kind of made me think everything we've been talking about is kind of self-absorbed. But he says, um, then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Uh, love and tolerance uh, of others is our code. And I think that's one thing that's always struck me most about a lot of the stuff in the big book is how the word others is in there so many times that I just, it's, that's the word that always jumps off the page. Yeah. And it's, it's not the way, it's not the way my, my brain works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. it just don't work. And that's, that's the big change, you know, the thing they say about, hey, hey you want to get sober, it's great, you know, you only have to change one thing, that's everything. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. the one everything right there. For yeah, me. yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, you know, I guess, how can I help others? I feel like that's what step 12 is making more explicit. But clearly, you're right. I mean, that the, I, I, I guess I, I just... Um, Venturing into trying to help others just has is a bit of a minefield to me, and even that's why even making amends I see as a bit of a minefield. So, uh, which is why I try to. I mean, my you know I guess you know as you say this sounded like it's more self-absorbed, and, I, and certainly you know Buddhist meditation is something that's more inward-looking, but. Um, you know, my sense is that what I can t- do something about is is my behavior, and you know, I, I'm the only person I can really do anything about. And then that's what's going to make it possible for me to be of service to others. If I you know, I mean, I, I don't think you're suggesting that you should just like, oh, how can I help other people bef- before I look at my own stuff, but no, no, he doesn't. He, he really doesn't say that at all. No, no. But uh, you know, I think that that's. I think you're, you're absolutely right, and that it's actually just the the natural outgrowth of of addressing our own our own stuff. But uh, you know, I, I'm looking for some more sections for step ten, so maybe I can work on 
bringing that in. If I'll, I'll have to reflect on it or contemplate it a little bit to do it. It's, it's 9.30 on this clock, and I don't want to keep people late, so I'm just going to do a, a brief closing. So let's just sit for a moment. Well, it's a, a good thought to close on that this practice is not ultimately for our own pleasure or satisfaction. That the Buddhist tradition says that we practice for all beings, that we offer our merit, whatever benefit comes from our practice to others. In the same way that the 12 steps guide us to a spiritual awakening that will benefit others. So in that spirit we offer whatever we've gained or learned this evening to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from the suffering of addiction. May all beings be happy, joyous, and free. Thank you for coming tonight. I hope you will come back next month. Um, well, I hope you'll come back next month. There will be a class. Yes, there will be a substitute teacher. Walt Opie, who leads the group in Berkeley, will be here. So do come back, support that. You'll need it as Thanksgiving approaches. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.